Episode 70, Christmas Flight. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a December 17, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. I love Between setting flight records, circumnavigating the globe, and disappearing somewhere in the Pacific, aviator and Kansas native Amelia Earhart found time to send out Christmas cards. Join Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we examine two holiday cards sent by Earhart to her friends in England. How did this tomboy from Kansas end up a global celebrity? And who is the mysterious GPP referenced on the cards? Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh Dashing through the snow Later, we connect William Allen White, a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer from Emporia, Kansas, to Axl Rose, the lead singer for Guns N' Roses and quintessential tantrum-throwing frontman when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. And because it's Christmas, we're providing a special holiday-themed Six Degrees by connecting William Allawhite to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Was the Island of Misfit Toys a metaphor for Emporia, Kansas? You'll find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allawhite Christmas Edition. But first, Christmas Flight. Hello, Nikayla. Today we're discussing a pair of Christmas cards in our collection that are marked with the initials AE and GPP. The cards are printed in black on white cardstock. One shows two people in a plane flying across the United States, and the other shows a woman in a helicopter being held down by a jovial Santa. Mm-hmm. Who is AE, and what is her link to Kansas? AE, uh, those initials stand for Amelia Earhart. And just to give you a little idea about the cards, um, these cards were uh, sent by Amelia Earhart to friends of hers. Uh, she sent them to all friends from all over the world, and these particular ones were sent to some friends that lived in, uh, in England. And they later sent them back to uh, Kansas and donated them to the Kansas, Kansas State Historical Society. Um, and the figures on the cards are very cartoony-looking. It's very, it's very comical. Um, and uh, so it's pretty fun. Okay, so the initials are A-E. Um, they stand for Amelia Earhart, like I said. And Earhart was a noted American aviator from the 1930s. And she sort of took on celebrity status eventually. But she's probably best known um, not for how she lived, but for how she died. Um, she had a bit of a mysterious death. And we'll get into that later. Um, and you asked what was her connection to Kansas. Well, Earhart actually grew up in Atchison, Kansas. Um and she was a little bit of a tomboy growing up. Her mother didn't believe in the traditional uh, uh, bring them up like a little, a proper little girl. She wanted their kids, she wanted her two daughters to be um, pretty adventuresome. And um, so Atchison sits right on the Missouri River. And uh, you can go to Amelia Earhart, um, to Earhart's uh, childhood home today. And um, it sets high on the bluffs above the Missouri River. And, and you kind of get the feeling that it has a very, um, 
sort of Tom Sawyer feel to the house. Um, and I think there's some parallels between Tom Sawyer and Amelia Earhart. Uh, Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer lived on the river, uh, the Mississippi River. He was very adventurous. And Amelia Earhart, as a child, was also very adventurous. Along with her sister, her sister, uh, she was known to climb trees, hunt rats, uh, hunt rats with a rifle. She collected worms and toads. So she was, she was quite a bit of a tomboy. Uh, her father was a railroad clerk and um, kind of an alcoholic, uh, so he had problems holding down jobs. So the family moved around a lot, and Amelia and her sister uh, spent the majority of their childhood in Atchison with the grandparents while their parents were uh, looking for work. Later on, Amelia worked as a uh, Red Cross nurse. She, she worked as a teacher and a social worker for a short time. Finally, she took her first real flight in 1920, and after 10 minutes in the air, she was determined to dedicate the rest of her life to becoming a pilot. Um, after two years of various jobs while attending flight school in 1922, Earhart became the 16th woman to be issued a flight, a flight license. Um, so she was pretty early on. Uh, she was one of the, uh, one of the earlier female uh, pilots. But her real opportunity came uh, following Charles Lindbergh's, Lindbergh's historic solo flight across the Atlantic. Atlantic. Um, his flight proved highly successful and rather lucrative for many of the promoters, and they wanted to sort of replicate what they had done um, by hiring a uh, female version of Lindbergh to do the same thing. Um, so they chose Earhart, who had earned a reputation as a rather daring female pilot, um, and she became known as Lady Lindy. Uh, she embarked on a career uh, that set various aviation records, um, and after each, each um, success, she would often go on uh, talking tours, lectures, uh, so she became really well-known, and, and she hung out with presidents and nobility, um, and she even became a true celebrity-slash-fashion icon by endorsing a form of functional clothing line for women, and uh, she also endorsed some luggage. And she wrote a book, an autobiography of her experience, which is the standard format for any celebrity to do. So, a real renaissance woman, then. A bit, yes. So, um, as you mentioned, Amelia Hart was a household name in the 20s and 30s. And though I think you've probably already answered this question, why was she so popular and what records did she set? She was popular. I think her popularity at the time had a lot to do with uh, just just her timing. She came, uh, she came on in the 1920s and 30s. Um, in a time when, uh, not long after women had uh, won the right to vote, after they had won suffrage, sort of the first wave of the feminist movement in the early 20th century. So women had started to uh, gain legal rights and legal status more, but they hadn't really necessarily pushed the envelope in a lot of those male-dominated um, work fields. And Amelia Earhart did that. She took a male-dominated field and kind of... Uh, excelled in it and became successful at it. Uh, so she was kind of the perfect combination for a celebrity. She was quite beautiful. She was very tall for a woman. She was quite attractive. And so um, that sort of fast made her fascinating to men. So she was also breaking down uh, some gender barriers as well. So that's what kind of made her interesting to women. But um, so bottom line, she was a very innovative person, and she was very sort of challenging to social norms, but she wasn't too challenging, which is the trick. Um, Though she was pushing gender roles, she wasn't really pushing um, too many standards. There wasn't a lot of rigorous, I mean, flight um, as a profession hadn't existed for that long, so it wasn't too set in stone. Um, 
but she was taking a male-dominated field and being successful. But it wasn't a critical male-dominated field. It's not like she was running for Senate or anything. So she was challenging, she was interesting, and she was very exotic. And she was also uh, she was also well-promoted. And did you ask about some of the records she set? Yes. Like I said, she started out in the 1920s, and in 1928, she became the first female passenger to cross the Atlantic by plane. Uh, she didn't pilot that herself. She was the first passenger. Um, but that kind of gave her some no- notoriety, and um, so she was able to get a little more resources. Um, she began competing in air races and actually did quite well, not just for a woman, but for any of the racers, she did quite well. In 1930, she probably took her most most successful move when she completed a tran- transatlantic flight in her legendary Lockheed Vega. Um, it was kind of a secret flight. Not a lot of people knew about it because they weren't, um, I think she was in some ways considered concerned about how successful it would be. So they took off, um, sort of not a lot of publicity, and when she landed in England, she kind of landed out in the field, out in the middle of nowhere, and a farmhand first spotted her, and he came up to her and asked her, uh, have you flown far? And she replied, from America. I think that's very interesting. Hmm. You know, a plane just lands from America, or lands in your yard, and you ask them where they're <laughs> from, and she says, from America. Very I mean, inconspicuous. Not, yeah, not a lot of people had done that yet. Um, <clears throat> so this second flight in 1932, it, it really sort of sealed her um, sealed her destiny as a successful celebrity, and that's when she became. That's when she began to get to know a lot of other famous figures. In particular, she developed a pretty close relationship with Eleanor Roosevelt, who was kind of the. I don't know. She was probably probably top of the top of the tier of so, of society in America. Um, they developed a very close relationship, mainly because they saw they were both dedicated to the advancement of uh, opportunities for women. Um, throughout the 1930s, she uh, she made pioneering solo flights all over. She was the first to fly to Hawaii. Um, she flew from New York to Mexico City, and these were all flights that had never been done before. Um, but bottom line is she kind of really helped people accept flight as a realistic form of travel, that it wasn't some sort of experimental um, experimental form of travel for the rich, the wealthy, or the, the adventurous, that anybody could be a part of it. Okay, so we know now what AE stands for, but um, the other set of initials on the cards belong to George Palmer Putnam, who was a publishing tycoon. What was his relationship to Earhart? Um, Putnam was Earhart's PR guy. Um, he uh, he he really sort of discovered her. Um, he also had he had also discovered Charles Lindbergh and kind of was the primary sponsor to his flight across the U.S. And uh, he kind of set up this model of of helping his publishing company. He his he was part of the owner of um, G of G P Putnam and Sons, which is a very uh, a very it was a big publishing house at the time. It's still today a very big publishing house. Um, so he set up this model to to basically make money and to a degree exploit some of these pilots. But he would hire them. They would make a daring feat. He would then uh, have them write a book about it, and the the Putnam and Sons publishing company would retain rights to the books. Um, he would also have them go on lecture tours, um, so they became quite well known. And it was a very successful model. It worked for Lindbergh. He replicated that with um, Earhart, um, so it was a very successful model. So him and Earhart uh, traveled a lot together. Uh, he set up speaking lectures for her. He would set up a lot of events, meetings with other celebrities, and they grew to be very close. And eventually, um, they got married. Although Earhart herself was, like I said, very adventurous, and she was a little resilient to the idea of getting married. And he actually had to ask her, I believe it was six times, 
before she agreed to marry him. And mm-hmm. even when she did, she um, early on in the relationship, she kind of set some conditions for the marriage, saying that she was never going to be the average housewife. She was not going to be staying at home and just having a lot of children. She, uh, she wanted some adventure, and she was going to continue to fly. Uh, so that is who, uh, that's who the initials GPP are, is George Palmer Putnam. And you'll notice, so um, the letters, th- these cards were actually sent out after they were married, and um, um, she retained her maiden name of Earhart. She never did take the name um, Putnam. Earhart died while trying to set a new flying record. What was she attempting to do, and what was the outcome? Well, in 1938, or in 1937, um, Earhart uh, planned her most ambitious uh, stunt, and her goal was to circumnavigate the globe by plane. Uh, She wasn't the first to do this, um, but her trip was going to follow along the equator, and so it, in effect, would be the longest trip, uh, the longest circumnavigation ever done, at 29,000 miles, which... um, (laughs) which would be done by landing along a series of islands through the Pacific, landing at different points in India and in South America. Um, so, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a journey of 29,000 miles, which I saw that, and I think that's kind of interesting because that makes me realize that my car has traveled, the sur- has traveled, uh, traveled around the Earth like three times. So that's pretty interesting, yeah. Um, so to do this, she had to ditch the Red Vega that had made her famous, and she took on the Lockheed Electra. So both those fly, both of those planes, again, both Lockheed. So you can kind of see a little bit of her pattern of success here. She often flew Lockheed planes. Well, Lockheed often sponsored a lot of her activities, a lot of her trips. So she made her first attempt. Um, she flew from California. She was headed east to west around the Earth. She started out, she flew from Hawaii, or she flew from California to Hawaii, and when she reached Hawaii, um, the plane had some problems. So they had to nix the, uh, nix the, nix the attempt, and um, so they went for a second attempt. Um, mind you, both times she was flying with a navigator, which wasn't completely unusual to have a navigator uh, with a trip that long. Well, and with instrument panels, what they were back then. Exactly. Non-existent. Exactly. And maybe just to, just to keep you a little company while, yeah. you're, uh, while you're flying around the world. Um, so the second attempt proved to be a little more successful. And they had changed some, some plans around this because some of the, the wind directions had changed after the first failure. Seasons had changed a little bit. So this time they were flying from... Uh, they were flying from west to east. So they started in Oakland, California, flew to Miami, Florida, hit South America, flew to India. Finally, towards the last leg of the trip, they were headed to the Pacific, which is probably the most difficult or complex leg of the entire journey. As I said, she was flying with a navigator named Fred Noonan. Um, He was a well-known navigator at the time, pretty capable. It was finally, it was when they entered the Pacific that things began to go wrong. They had, now keep in mind, this is what really I think sucks, is they had completed 22,000 miles of the trip, and they were down to the last seven, Mm. last 7,000, and that's when things start going wrong. July 2nd, 1937, the two took off from Papua New Guinea. And their destination was the Holland Isles, which is the Holland Islands, which is, um, I'm sorry, Howland Islands, um, which is about 3,000 miles southwest of Hawaii. So it's out in the middle of the Pacific, in the middle of nowhere. About 800 miles into that trip, the plane vanishes. They lose radio contact with them, and nobody ever sees the plane 
or the pilot or the navigator ever again. And that's what's so mysterious about the death is nobody knows what happened to them. Um, there was a series of radio transmission between Earhart and some naval ships in the area um, that was intended to help guide the plane into the uh, into Howland Island runway. Um, and but the, the transmissions are very garbled. Um, it sounds as though Earhart's very confused. Um, so nobody's really quite sure what happened to them. So Earhart Noonan and her Electra are never recovered. They're gone. And the cause of the disappearance was attributed to a failed radio communications and a lack of fuel. Um, so a massive, a massive search was undertaken by the U.S. Navy, and later Putnam himself dumps a ton of money into looking for her, trying to find his wife. But to no avail, she's never located. So as with many mysterious disappearances, there are many conspiracies surrounding Earhart's disappearance. Official records indicate that she died as a result of a plane crash, but others have different ideas. What do they think actually happened? Oh, there are several <laughs> theories. I mean, it's a bit of a conspiracy theory, a fantasy of what happened to Earhart. Um, first, there's the crash and, th- crash and sink theory, which is pretty much the main explanation, the most believed theory. And that theory just basically says that Earhart and Noonan ran out of fuel and the plane went down in the ocean. And that's why nobody's ever recovered the plane. Um, so that's the most plausible. There's also another theory called the Garland, called the Gardner Island theory. Gardner Island is a tiny, tiny island not far from Howland Island where they were supposed to land. And some believe that they got off course, the plane went down, but they were able to make it to this island where they survived um, periodically. And the reason that they believe this is in 1940, they came across some bones on the island, which they identified as a tall female of European descent. And they, um, they assumed that that was possibly Amelia Earhart. They also came across some improvised survival tools um, that were fashioned from what some believe to be parts of the Electra. But the plane was never found. And there was even some question of the validity of what the origin of these bones were. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest. You know, in a lot of ways, it sounds like people really grabbing for straws about mm-hmm. what happened to mm-hmm. them there. Uh, finally, there's my favorite. That's a theory. There's the theory that they were working as spies for Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Mm. It's totally plausible. Plausible. They were flying in the um, that the whole around the world flight was really just a, a cover up. Was just a made up scenario so they could take pictures of Japanese activity uh, in the Pacific. It's totally possible. Mm. Uh, finally, there's also the Saipan claim, which is the theory that um, this is a rather tragic one that Earhart and Noonan actually crashed into the Japanese-occupied island of Saipan and were tortured and executed. This has actually got a little momentum in the last couple years, or probably the last decade or so, um, primarily because there's a lot of, uh, there was a a daughter of uh, a Japanese descendant who said her father was the guard at the prison where they were held, and that she, that he spoke about Earhart and Noonan and that they were executed. Mm. Well, there are many famous Kansans who might send or have sent Christmas cards to friends and family, just like Earhart did. Um, I'll give you the Kansan, the famous Kansan, and you tell me what their cards might have on the front. 
All right. Okay. Okay, John Brown. John Brown. I am seeing a picture of John Brown, sort of tragic <laughs> prelude, like the mural tragic prelude. He's got the rifle in one hand and a Bible in the other, and a caption that reads, he knows when you've been naughty or nice. Ooh, that is a creepy Christmas card. <laughs> I hope nobody got one of those. All right, Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower. I'm picturing his um, Christmas card. Just basically have a picture of him and Mimi and the son. Um, family photograph with a message at the bottom that re- that reads, Mimi and the boy are doing fine. By the way, I saved the world from fascism. <laughs> Merry Christmas and you're welcome. So kind of the, the what we've been up to letter for the year. Exactly. Yeah, I like it. All right, William Allen White. William Allen White. I picture him, just a standard picture of William Allen White, photoshopped with a white beard and mustache. Because he kind of has the shape yeah. of Santa Claus already. Yeah. I thought maybe he'd want to show off his famous friends, like there'd be Teddy and Edna Ferber, you know, like, uh-huh. you know, forget his family, just the famous friends. Yes, yes, yeah. the famous That's cool. Okay, and finally, some people may not know about this Kansas celebrity, but she hails from Wichita, everybody's favorite uh, Jenny Craig alumni. <sighs> Christie Alley. Correct. Christie Alley. She is a Kansas native. I am picturing Christie Alley's Christmas card, basically just a shot of a big snowman-shaped sugar cookie. All right. <laughs> Food. That, uh, yeah, makes sense. Poor, poor, poor Kirstie Alley. <laughs> I know. The holidays are a rough time for her. Yeah. Well, you know, she's a Kansas girl. Exactly. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Merle. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer had a very shiny nose. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is curator Laurel Fritsch. Hello. And assistant registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hi. Today we are connecting William Allen White to Axl Rose. Yes, the Axl Rose, the front man for the 80s hard rock band Guns N' Roses. Uh, later, we uh, we have a special Christmas tree for everyone. Uh, we're going to be connecting William Allen White to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> Not reindeer. <laughs> <laughs> Reindeer. Um, but first, before we get to all that, uh, we're going to uh, have Laurel. Uh, you're going to give us a little listener feedback. That's right. Well, Darla from Hardin, Kentucky, responded to our podcast about a tombstone that belonged to a man named S.M. Marshall. All we know about Marshall is that he was from Wadesboro, Kentucky, and died of cholera on the Oregon Trail. But Darla may have some new clues for us. She wrote to us to say, I now live in Hardin, Kentucky, Marshall County. This is the same county that S.M. Marshall was from, and Wadesboro is where my husband's father and mother and other siblings are buried. It is about six miles from us. That's just about all it consists of, just the cemetery now. And, of course, a small community. S.M. Marshall was probably one of the founding fathers of Marshall County. So I think that's kind of interesting. Darla points out that... um, uh, Marshall being from Wadesboro, which was indicated on his tombstone. Um, that's what we talked about in the podcast was the tombstone this man had. Um, and all it told us was that he was from Wades- Wadesboro, Kentucky. And come to find out that's in Marshall County. Same as the last name on the man that died. Anyway, now back to Axel Rose. Um, just a little bit of general background on Mr. Rose. Uh, William Bruce Rose Jr. was born in Lafayette, Indiana. Uh, His parents divorced when he was really young, and Rose grew up with a stepfather that he actually thought was his biological father for most of his life. He found, not for most of his life, but for most of his youth, he found out 
you know, kind of in his high school years, and that's when the, the rebellion began. Uh, Rose, this really cracks me up, Rose actually sang in the church choir and taught Sunday school. Axel Rose taught Sunday school. Uh, at <laughs> seven, an interesting service. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, at 17, he left home for L.A. Uh, 1985, he became the lead singer for the highly successful Guns N' Roses. After a long period of initial success, the band experienced a slow and painful death that finally ended about in 1994. Um, that's when the band broke up, but more primarily, that's when Axl Rose became a pretty, um, pretty extreme recluse. Uh, you really didn't hear from him, except from time to time he would let people know that he's working on an album. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. Rose is probably, as all frontmen, he's probably best known for his rants and feuds. Um, during concerts, he often grew angry at fans or concert staff and was prone to just leaving the venue with a concert halfway through. Uh, a venue full of thousands of people. I read um, that one time they locked him in to make sure he <laughs> stayed. He left the stage and they called security and had him lock it down so he couldn't leave. And then he went back to the stage and finished. Man, such extremes for, <laughs> for, for Guns N' Roses. Axel Rose. Yeah. Uh, Rose also ha- held feuding relations with uh, characters such as um, uh, the, or the band Motley Crue, Kurt Cobain, Bon Jovi, of course all potential rivals. Uh, he also has some feuds with all of his former bandmates <laughs> and Tommy Hilfiger, which, <laughs> which, which one of these they things got is not a, like the other? They got into a fist fight. Um, yeah, that's what, the so, perfume was terrible. I don't know. <laughs> what I, I can only imagine what a fist fight between Tommy Axel Hilfiger and Hilfiger and Axl Rose looks like. What what a waste of time that would be. <laughs> so anyway, Nikayla, I believe you have a solution. You have a way to connect yeah. Axl Rose to. Uh, to our boy, William Allen White. Yeah, it's a little weak. So if somebody out there has a better one, please, by all means, let us know. Um, as you mentioned, uh, Axl Rose was the, the head man for Guns N' Roses. Um, at one point, before they were really big, they performed at a club called The Troubadour, which is in West Hollywood, California. Um, that was that was the place they were playing when they kind of got discovered. Um, in 1974, uh, the club had a long history of of uh, kind of premiering people who later became very famous. Mm -hmm. And uh, the club opened in the 50s. It continued up through the 90s. Um, In 1974, John Lennon was ejected from the club for heckling Drunkenly heckling the Smothers Brothers. Well, but that's yeah. just rude. Yeah. Who heckles the Smothers the Brothers? The Smothers Brothers are great. Apparently John Lennon. <laughs> so, uh, uh, interestingly enough, John Lennon's middle name is Winston. He was named after Winston Churchill. Really? Yes. Prior to World War II and um, his time as the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill praised the regime of Benito Mussolini in Italy, stating that the dictator had, quote, rendered a service to the world by showing a way to combat subversive forces. And he believed this would be a way to... um, to resist a communist revolution. Just um, to be clear, this is pre-World War pre-World II, Pre-World right? War II, right, before he became prime minister. And actually, he was exiled, kind of, um, politically, because of his views like this one. Um, Churchill called Mussolini a, a Roman genius, the greatest um, lawgiver among men. And as we know from previous podcasts, William Allen White once interviewed Mussolini. Well, gee, I really thought Churchill had better judgment and taste in friends yeah. than that. Well, you know, maybe he was still developing at that point, and, you know, he just 
or maybe after he became prime minister, he realized I got to change my views. But this isn't going to last make long. New friends. This isn't going to go well. <laughs> He's fascist, man. Yeah. He'll bring you down. But the fact that that's the way you can connect Axl Rose to William Allen White just seems this bizarre. is by way of Mussolini. Yeah, but I'm really glad John Lennon's parents named him Winston for his middle name because that saved our saved us on that one. So. True, true. Now, uh, more significantly. Uh, um, let's hear the connection between uh, William Malloy and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Yes. Well, not rain beer. Not rain beer. No, I don't have a connection for that one. And since William Malloy was a prohibitionist, I don't think that would go over too well anyway. Uh, yeah, in the spirit of Christmas, we're going to connect him to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. So um, everybody is familiar with the song by Gene Autry and the cartoon that we watch on uh, on TV every year. But Rudolph what the song? Red- Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Okay, just clarifying. Just wanna, there was multiple songs in the movie. <laughs> do you want to sing it for us? Nope, I know how you I love sure Christmas know. carols. <laughs> okay. Um, fewer people probably know that um, the Rudolph story was also made into a series of comics that were published by National Allied Publications, which later became DC Comics. National Allied Publications was established by Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. Oh, yeah. Which we remember from before, right? Um, as a child, uh, Wheeler Nicholson met a lot of famous people. His parents entertained them at their house, um, including Rudyard Kipling and Theodore Roosevelt. Um, Kipling's wife was given away at their wedding by Henry James. And as we know, William Allen White spent a very memorable day with Henry James while traveling in England. Or if you want to take the obvious route... William Allen White was BFF with Teddy Roosevelt. So there you go. Well, that's pretty impressive. I like it. Um, (laughs) All right. uh, Laurel, uh, you want to give us the challenge for the next episode? Sure. All right. So for our next episode, we want you to connect William Allen White to the nation's most recognized auctioneer, Rod Blagojevich. I believe that's Blagojevich. Oh, sorry. I mean, look at it. You can do it any way you want to. There's too many consonants there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure John Stewart put together a nice uh, clip on how many different pronunciations of that name that uh, you can have. All right. Well, anyway, so uh, if you don't know who he is, he was elected governor of Illinois, um, at least for now, that is. If you think you can connect a crooked governor from Illinois to a round editor from Emporia, send us an email at podcasts at kshs.org. That's podcast with an S. I love That concludes episode 70, Christmas Flight. If you would like to see images of Amelia Earhart's Christmas cards, just go to our website, kshs.org, and click on the podcast icon. Come back in two weeks when Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin and I examine an unusual hat from the Civil War. Known as a slouch, this hat was recovered on a battlefield in Arkansas. Often overlooked in history, these battles of the Trans-Mississippi were both brutal and strategic and claimed the lives of many brave Kansans. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Today, or the fields we go. Today, or the fields we go.